perfect selection. I like that last one. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. You know, it was, it's crazy how the longer I'm here, we have progressively been given more opportunities and notifications from the congregation that there are opportunities to go here and here. A, a few weeks ago, Miss Hazel told me, Miss Hazel uh, Rogers, who sits in the back, I think, uh, is she here right now? Or she go, I think she goes to first service. Miss Hazel said, I know where you can go. My daughter has a place, and you can go preach at their church. I mean, we have been getting told we can go for a while now, and it's a blessing. I mean, you have, you have offered plenty of opportunities to go, and I said, Madison, well, well maybe it's time. So, this is the congregation we're going to. Uh, we start July 1st, and I'm the next pulpit minister for the Plaza Church of Christ in uh, Sumter, South Carolina. So we're going to be a ways away. I don't know how often. Maybe we can come back and visit occasionally, uh, once every couple of years. And you invite me back to preach in a, in a weekend or something, a summer series, even though I don't do a summer series anymore. Have another one of those and invite me back, uh, because this is where we're going to be. We are two hours from Charlotte, two hours from Charleston, three hours from the mountains, and 11 hours from you. Uh, <laughs> we're we're going to be a ways. It's a, a geographical oddity. We are in the middle of nowhere and the middle of everywhere uh, at the exact same time. So if you happen to be going to Myrtle Beach, stop and visit with us and go to church at the Plaza Church of Christ because we'd love to have you visit with us. Uh, there were a couple of things that that as we went, we were looking for in our congregation, and I feel like Plaza fits what we were looking for the most. Plaza is a church of 135. Uh, they're the largest church of Christ in their community. Uh, the community is of 40,000, so uh, thank goodness there is a Walmart in town and cell phone service, uh, or we wouldn't have made it. And uh, they, they are really neat. I was looking for a group of men as elders that reminded me the most of the group of men that I hear, have here at Valley View. Uh, we've lost a lot of elders this year that, that are no longer serving with us. And I pray for this, this eldership. But I know that the ones that we have are, are so great, and we've been so blessed to have these kinds of leaders. I don't want you to take it for granted, because I've been around and I've seen it. You've got something special here and these men that lead you. And I feel like the elders at the Plaza Church are solid. They know the word. They shepherd their people, and they reflect what I've seen in the shepherds here. Another thing that's interesting about this church, it's very diverse. It's equally parted African-American and, and Caucasian, and it reflects the population of the community of Sumter, and the eldership reflects its diversity in its own number. That's beautiful to me. And they, they represent something that our, our nation seems to be more divided on now than ever, they've found strength in that. I want to be a part of that. I want to learn what it takes to do that. And if they'll, hopefully, as much patience and love that they've shown one another, I hope that they show it to me and Madison. Be patient with me and love me, and, and I feel really good about it. So I want to thank you uh, for supporting us, and we leave uh, July 1st is my starting day at, at the Plaza Church of Christ. That's when we begin. And next week, I'll preach somewhere else. But for all of uh, June, we plan to be 
at Valley View on Sundays because I want to worship with y'all, and I hadn't been able to do it the whole time I've been here unless I'm preaching. So uh, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel this morning, so you can uh, go ahead and turn there if you want to. 1 Samuel chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. I want you to think with me. Have you ever watched your favorite sports team and wondered how in the world can this man who's paid millions and millions of dollars miss that free throw? It is called a free throw for a reason, people. It's free. Make the shot. Or how about uh, your football team? You know the kicker at the University of Alabama, the only thing he does to practice is to kick a football over and over again. And on the last drive of the national championship football game, you miss a 15-yard field goal? Make the field goal. I still hadn't let it go. Madison's got a recording of it. We're not playing it this morning. Or you watch the Cardinals, Cardinals baseball and you watch that batter who's paid millions of dollars, who has been swinging a bat at a ball before he could even walk, and who has been playing baseball before your kid has been alive, and he watches a fastball go down right through the middle of the plate and don't so much as swing at the ball. I would have swung. You had one job. You knew your job description when you started, and you blew it. And they're not the only ones that blow their job. I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but, but I've gone to McDonald's. McDonald's is the world's worst. I go and I order a McChicken. And I say, don't put any mayonnaise on my McChicken. And when I get that McChicken, not only has it got mayonnaise, it's got mayonnaise so high on the patty that my bun's sticking an inch off the patty. I scoop my own mayonnaise off. The boy had one job, and he blew it. And I tell myself, I say, Jonathan, be patient. Be patient because this is his first week on the job. He won't mess it up next week, and that's great and all. But then there's these people. This, this blows my mind. Does anybody know what a sot is? I don't know how to sot if you ask me to. And this guy... They do not let just anybody drive a truck. He drives a truck that says on the side, on the road to success, there are no shortcuts. He went on a shortcut and destroyed his truck. Do you, how do you do that? You knew your job description. You knew your job. You had one job, and you blew it. And I'm not the only ones that mess up their jobs. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 13 through 20. And as we read, I want you to think with me. The priests of the Lord apparently did not know their job descriptions because they blew it. In these verses, the author's going to take the time to explain to you all the ways in which Eli's sons had messed up the offering. So here's your assignment this morning. In verses 13 through 17, as we read, I want you to think, what are they doing there at Shiloh that is messing up the offering of the Lord? And then, 
we're going to, as we read 13 through 17, we're going to stop at 17, and we're going to go back to verse 12. So we're going to read it a little out of order. We're going to read 13 through 17, and then go back to verse 12. So be thinking with me, how are they messing up the offering of the Lord? Here it is. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest would come with, while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That was supposed to go to the Lord, church. This is what they did at Shiloh, only at Shiloh, to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing to this Israelite, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them take the, and burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish. Church, realize what he's doing here. He's saying, look, take my meat. Take the meat that I'm supposed to get after this offering. Take it from my family, but don't take it from the Lord. He would say, no, nah, buddy. You're going to give it to me now, and if you ain't going to get it, I'm going to take it from you by force. Verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Back up to verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Church, what was their job? They were priests. They did not know the Lord. Church, how? This confuses me. How can you be a priest of the Lord and not know your God? You have one job, and you blew it. He takes five verses to explain to, the, to us how in the world that the priest at Shiloh, and only at Shiloh, had taken the easiest part of being a priest and blew the whole process. There were a lot of things that were hard about being a priest. I'll give you some examples. It was hard to be an ambassador to the Lord on behalf of the people. It was hard to be an ambassador to the people on behalf of the Lord. It was hard to be a spiritual example to a whole nation of people. That was hard. But the easiest part of their job was taking an offering from the Lord. It didn't get any easier, and I'll tell you why. They had a whole book devoted to how they were supposed to take the offering. In that book, it tells you what you're supposed to do when you mess up the offering of the Lord. It goes into very strenuous details on how to do this, and as long as you follow that step-by-step -step instruction manual, you can't mess it up. You could mess up being a spiritual leader. You can't mess up the offering. And these were priests. By the way, do you know what we call that book that has the step-by-step -step instruction? We still have it. It's called Leviticus because they were Levite priests. And they messed it up. It would be like LeBron James forget, forgetting how to know a dribble of basketball. It would be like LeBron James forgetting how to hold one, church. It would be like a makeup artist forgetting and putting lipstick on your eyebrows. It does not happen. They had one job, church, and they blew it. I want you to look with me to verse 12. This is how bad they blew it. 
Look at what it says in the ESV. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. How can you handle the things of the Lord daily? Worship in his temple and handle his things every day of your life. Study scripture, memorize scripture, know it, and memorize that book like the back of your hand. And then walk away and do not know the Lord. It would make some people say that. But I think the NIV captures this better, and your, whatever your translation might say this also, it says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. It wasn't that they didn't know him. It was that they didn't care about the things that he said. They walked away and said, I'm not going to do those things. And as confusing as it is for me, how I have to answer this question and say, how can you be a priest and not get these things right? As confusing as it is for me, I wonder even more so about these Jews who were doing it. Because if you read 15 through 16, you can see the ways that they met up. And I just messed up, and I'm not going to read it again because I just read it. But this is essentially what happens. These men, and, and by the way, most of the nation of Israel had abandoned their God. There were a few good men who still said, no. Even though my nation has abandoned my God, I'm not going to abandon him. My family's still going to get an offering. And that farmer raises these lambs. He raises that cattle. And he sees during that year that that lamb is born, and he watches that spotless lamb grow. He knows that lamb so well that when he caused it, it comes. It would make great wool. It, would just, it was the most valuable one that he had. And at the end of the year, when his whole nation refuses to go worship their God, he brings it, and instead of him messing up the offering, the priest does. It would be like my teacher, Spencer, coming up to me and saying, Jonathan, uh, I forgot how to write a sermon. Can you write one for me? And I would say, Spencer, you've been writing sermons longer than I've been alive. What do you mean you want me to write a sermon for you? And he'd say, well, I, I just don't know how it works anymore. It's the easiest, most straightforward job of being a preacher. That's what they did. And they had to listen to the nation of Israel tell them how they were supposed to give the correct offering. Do you want to know what they thought about it? Look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells you what these Israelites thought. It says, therefore, the sin of the young men was very great. I think the New King James or the King James says it best. They said, uh, the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The reason this is important is because it wasn't just the sons of Eli that abhorred the offering of the Lord. Because of the sin of Eli's sons, they made the whole nation of Israel abhor going to give an offering. They hated it. They detested it. They loathed it. They despised it. They scorned it. They thought of giving an offering of the Lord. They thought of it as an abomination. Church. They were priests of the Lord. And because of their sin, nobody wanted a relationship with God. May God have mercy on us if anybody looks at my faith and says, because Jonathan's a Christian, I don't want any part of it either. Because that is what had happened 
in the nation of Israel. They wanted no part of it. It was their symbolist responsibility, and they had abandoned their job description. Church, I think that sometimes we've forgotten the Christian job description. And before I keep preaching, I know a lot of you are going to say, Jonathan, this is not a job. Don't call it a job. That boy, is, he's left and gone crazy. But before you say that, I want you to know this. I don't think that the Christian walk is a job, but it's a, it's a whole lot bigger than that. You wear that hat on your head, that hard hat, all the time. You shouldn't look at the Christian walk and say, it is a job, though, because you've missed the point of being a Christian. You've missed the whole joy in it. But there are a few similarities between a job and the Christian walk, and I'll tell you what I think the biggest one is. Just like the Christian walk, our, or just like our jobs, the Christian walk does have some responsibilities. It really does. Anything you do will require you to have a few responsibilities. Look, there ain't no more fun in the world than going to Silver Dollar City. There ain't. I'm, I, you take me back and I have a good time. As a matter of fact, when you pull up and you drive the kids there and you get out at Branson and you say, welcome to Silver Dollar Cities, you don't say, kids, get ready for work. You don't do that. You say, kids, let's go have fun. And they bolt to the front gate, okay? But before they go, you say, keep your cell phone on you at all times. Stay with your brother or sister. Stay in your group all day long. Keep that phone so I can get in contact with you. And the reason you do is because that kid's going to have a ball all day long, but even though they're going to have that fun, they have got to have a few responsibilities. That's the way that works. The Christian walk is joyous. You can't have any more joy in knowing the good that we're going to have when we in this world. And nobody else in the world has that, church. It's a good thing. But even though it's so joyous, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have some responsibilities. That's the way that it works. And we have a responsibility. Church, I want to tell you what the greatest, the penultimate job description of the Christian is. But before I do, I want to tell you some things that it isn't, and I, I think that they might surprise you. The greatest responsibility of being a Christian is not, it is not to be in this church every time the doors open. Some people think that that is, but it's not. And if you are doing the greatest responsibility, you'll try to be here every time you can. But it's not the greatest job description. Church, the amount of dime that you drop in the collection basket is not the greatest job responsibility. The fact that you can put more in than so-and-so can doesn't mean that you are a better Christian because it is not the greatest responsibility. You put in what you can if you're following the great responsibility, but it is not the greatest responsibility of being a Christian. Doing things Christ says aren't the greatest things about being a Christian. I'll give you an example. Turning the other cheek, not the greatest. It's on up there. 
you're going to do it if you are doing the greatest, but it is not the greatest. I'm going to tell you what the greatest is. So listen, if you want to know what it is. If you can follow these few verses, if you can live your life by this job description, you will have understood what it means to be a Christian. Here it is. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and 40. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. This is the great responsibility of the Christian. And by the way, Christ says commandment. You can pop commandment out and put responsibility in because that's really what it is. You've got to do it. It's responsibility. It's part of having this job. So I'm going to pop that word in. Verses 36 through, 30, through 40. Teacher, what is the greatest responsibility in all the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, and with all your mind. Do it with all you have. This is the great and first responsibility. And on the, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two responsibilities depend all of the law and all of the prophet. Church, if you can figure out these two, if you can love the Lord your God with all that you have, and if you can love your neighbor as yourself, you've learned the secret to being a Christian. These Levitical priests, Eli and Hophni, had the whole book of Leviticus. You've got four verses. Four verses. Church, we've got to figure these two out. Love the Lord your God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Christian job description. But there are a lot of people that even though they're here every time the door's open, do not know or follow that job description. They may know it, but that doesn't mean that they live by it. There are people that are raised going to church from the time that, you know, that they could get out of the house. The first place they went was to church. And they'll be raised by their mothers, even told that they need to be baptized and pressured into it. And they'll commit to the Lord. They'll be at church every time the door opens. And it'll be because of respect for somebody, but it isn't because of love for their God. And then that person will grow. They'll become a man or, or a woman. And they'll marry a spouse from church because that's where they spent all their time growing up. And when they marry that person, that person says, hey, we're going to church, and even though they can't stand the place, they go anyway because their spouse made them go. And that person may lead prayers at church. They may serve communion at church. And this is really scary. They may be a preacher at church but it doesn't mean that they ever did it because of love for the Lord. They're broken. They don't understand their job description. Without a heart that knows your Lord, you mean and have no care for Him. The people like that live their lives, and they end it like the sons of Eli. And this is scary because the responsibility of the sons of Eli was a whole lot like the responsibility of me and you. The job of the priest was to be and let the people know who their God was. They had to let him know who they were. And they were also supposed to love their God more than anything else. That is our job description, church. And just like some of us, they forgot what it was too. 
And I don't want that for us, church, and you need to change it if you're in that situation because of what happens to Eli's family. Look at 1 Samuel 3, verses 12 through 14. 1 Samuel 3, 12 through 14. This is what it says. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Church, that's when they were eating this meat. That's when they were taking that fat that was supposed to be God's. This in that he knew and didn't do anything about it. I'm about to declare to him that I'm about to punish him and his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. There's a verse in here about this hard heart. Because this family knew their sin and they refused to change, their heart was hard. But that's not what we're supposed to be like, church. I know Spencer's been preaching about this hard heart here lately. And I haven't been here for it, so I'm behind you on the ball. I haven't seen his study. This is the first time I've run into hard-heartedness uh, in my study by name. But I want to show you, even though I haven't studied it deeply, this is what I know about human nature. Let's pretend all of the toothpaste in this tube is the lives of the sons of Eli, uh, Hophni, and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas, up until this verse, had lived their life and had squeezed out about half of that tube. They had wasted it. I wish you could hear the noises. It's bad. Had wasted it. And when they get their life real messed up, I mean messing up that whole plate, and it looks about like that, God says, okay, no longer can you live your life this way, wasting your life dumping it out on things that it never should have been on. I want you to change your life. And sometimes as people, we hear that and we think that means we need to get all that toothpaste right back here in this tube. We hear that and we think, I have to get it back. I have to take all those sins back. My life can't be as empty as it is now. I've got to change it and put that toothpaste back in church. I ain't even about to try to put this back in here. And they decided not to repent. To me, that's what hard-heartedness and the simplicity of it, that's what it looks like. I know it's a whole lot more than that, but to me, that's what it looks like, and I've seen it in people that I love. Church, I've seen this in some of your lives the time that I've been here. I've gone around predominantly during the day when I get to visit. I'm, I'm with older members. And I'll go to them and I'll carry a little blue book. I don't know if you sent it. I take my notepad with me and I ask you every question that I can ask you and I take notes. And I do it because when I leave here, whenever I look back over, I can get all that wisdom that you've given me and I can read about the lessons you've learned in your life and it'll benefit me greatly. But usually, if I pick at a certain time in somebody's life and ask a lot of questions about it, people will say, after they've tried to skip over it, that I wish you wouldn't ask me about that time in my life because 
there are a lot of things I shouldn't have done. I wasted my life on it. I never should have done it. And I don't want you to think less of me because of it. And what I want those people to know is, I have never once thought less of those people. And I'll tell you why. At one point in time, they had wasted their life, about half of that tube, and they hit rock bottom. And they decided, it's time for me to get this toothpaste back in the tube. And after they got it all over their hands and made a big mess all over the plate and all over the table, they decided, there's no way I'm getting it back. But rather than being hard-hearted and doing what the sons of Eli did, which is this, they wasted it. The Christians that I've interviewed this summer from this church that have gotten over their sins and have stuck with their faith have stopped the tube where it was and said, I ain't wasting another drop on something that ain't supposed to be spent on. They realized what their job description was, church. From that point in their lives forward to today, after they hit rock bottom, they said, my job description isn't about me. I can't take back the things that I've done, but I can learn from those things, and I can live by a new job description that rules my life. I can love the Lord my God with everything that I can have, and I can love my neighbor as myself. And hard-heartedness, that thing that took over the lives of Eli and his house, do not take over their lives. And church, I'm thankful for it. And I'll tell you why. This is my invitation for today. It could have come out of nowhere, but I want you to know it. Today, I want you to come forward. If you carry a sin that's causing your heart to be hard and you don't want to live that way, you know that this is the job description that you have, but you refuse to live like it anymore because you do love your Lord, your God, and you want to soften your heart, then why don't you please come confess it? Tell us and confess it because we need to hear it. But as bad as I want them to come forward, here's what I need you to know, church, even more than them. If you are somebody and you hear that person come forward and confess, and you know that you identify with the sin that they confess, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come forward. And I want you to tell them about how you had lost about half that tube. You had hit rock bottom and you stopped and you changed. Church, that's what church is about. That's the whole reason we have this family here. We need you to do that. And I promise you, if you confess, somebody shares in that sin is going to come forward. If you're somebody who isn't a Christian, you know you want to live by that job description. You want your whole life built around this idea. Then why don't you come be a Christian? Why don't you get baptized as we stand and as we sing? Have thine own way.